Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Michael Squires, the politics editor at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me at our Arizona Capitol Bureau this week are... Mary Jo Pitzel, state government reporter, soon to move to child welfare coverage. Ron Hansen, I cover the state's congressional delegation. Yvonne Winget Sanchez, I cover the governor's office and state politics. This week on The Gaggle, which Arizona members of Congress are most supportive of the Trump agenda? The latest clash between foster parents and the Department of Child Safety? And the Arizona Redistricting Commission wraps up its work. But first, we start with an unusual request for Arizona voter information from the Trump administration and the ensuing fallout. Yvonne, what happened? Chris Kobach, who's vice chair of the election integrity panel created by President Trump back in May, asked Secretary of State Reagan for a lot of information about Arizona voters, um, including voter history, last four digits of Social Security, um, any instances of voter fraud or uh, convictions for election-related crimes that may have been committed um, over the past couple of decades. Um, Secretary of State Reagan, before she received the letter, uh, told the Arizona Republic and other media outlets that she would be complying with this request, and then soon after, reversed course and said she would not be uh, providing that information. She said uh, she was uncertain um, how the information would be used, and she didn't feel comfortable handing over this detailed information to this panel. There is good reason that she would be uncertain on how it would be used, because in his letter, uh, Secretary Kobach, and I say that because he is Secretary of State in Kansas, said that any information that the states hand over would be made public. Well, that triggered just alarm all across the board from people regardless of party saying, I don't want this information out there. This could be, and although Arizona law would not allow uh, Reagan in any event to release the last four of Social Security number or mother's maiden name, um, she appeared to be willing to give out a voter's name, their address, the district they live in, their, some of their voting history. And people were, were alarmed by this and flooded her office with a lot of opposition. You know, campaigns acquire quite a bit of this information, to, you know, when they target people with mailers. If you get a mailer, you know, from a candidate, it's not happenstance. They have targeted you. But what's different with this request? And like you say, Mary Jo, it's that it's going to be made public. Is that the one, is that kind of the big one there? That it, that it would be made public. And there is widespread suspicion about what's the purpose of this Election Integrity Advisory Commission. It's been widely assumed that a lot of it is because President Trump um, has made allegations that there were he lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton because of voter fraud. So is this looking for voter fraud where the record shows not much? You know, and beyond that, there's also considerable fear these days about voter suppression as well. And so beyond whatever happened in 2016 is what would be done with this in the future. And oh, by the way, there's this Russia thing that has a lot of folks concerned about the integrity of anything that's posted online after all the hacking that is alleged and that we have 
heard uh, in in the corporate world and other uh, settings. I think there's a, a pretty significant public fear out there about the use of information, especially uh, the closer you get to things like dates of birth, exact address, um, your political partisan preferences and such. Um, there's just a squeamishness that is different than I think we would have seen even four years ago if the Obama administration had sought this uh, from the public. And some of that squeamishness was laid bare in records that we were able to review on Monday. The Secretary of State's office got about a thousand, what was it, over a couple of days, right. emails from constituents uh, of all, you know, political parties saying, I'm concerned about someone stealing my identity. Uh, if this all this information is in one place, that might make it more vulnerable to hackers. It make it might make it more vulnerable to, you know, Russians, uh, Russian hacking. And um, by and large, there was just outrage that she would even consider uh ponying up this information, and I think that her political calculus had to have been at play as well. She's up for re-election, and we've seen a couple of blunders or a series of blunders from her while uh, in office, uh, at least in this role. All that said, it's important to note that there was a law passed this year by the legislature, signed by the governor, and it was caught up, in, also reflected in a settlement on the project vote lawsuit. So a lot of this core voter data, not the social security number business, not the maiden name, but the voter name, their address, their date of birth. That is a public record, and that, and it has been. It's just been very expensive to obtain that information, and, um, except if you were a political party in Arizona, then you got a great break on it. But because of this legislation and the lawsuit settlement, the cost of that has come way down, and that is a public record that is obtainable which makes me wonder if the Kobach Commission might come back on that, but I think this door has maybe been shut pretty firmly given there are so many other states that have also pushed back. The county recorders have pushed back on this as well. They are the people that oversee voter registration. So, so do we have any idea on what he wanted to do with this? He, the letter didn't state what the purpose of the data was other than to assemble a database, um, and it comes as the you know President Trump had said, Without support, evidence supporting it, we should note that millions voted illegally last November. Yvonne? Well, he, he doesn't say specifically what he's going to do with it, but it just it, the letter talks about how the commission is charged with studying registration and voting processes used in elections. And uh, they want to ensure that the American, that American confidence in the election system uh, isn't undermined in any way, shape, or form. So it doesn't really spell out specifically what they intend to do with the information. There is suspicion, though, uh, based on a photograph that was taken when Kobach was meeting with President Trump, you know, back during the transition time. He had a bunch of documents in his, uh, under his arm, and <laughs> people blew up the image, and they could see that there seemed to be references to amending the National Voter Registration Act, perhaps the motor voter component. So I would be watching for legislation that might come along um, to perhaps tighten up the way we try to register people to vote, even in an era when we're trying to get more people, or the elections types are trying to get more people to register to vote. Well, Arizona has been a dreamland for the for the Republican voting agenda, where here you are required to prove your citizenship, which is not the case in, in other states. Also, there's the uh, anti-what they call ballot harvesting, where it's illegal to collect the ballots of people who are voting legally. Uh, w what else will we expect? Will we expect to see that taken to other states? Is that kind of the idea behind this? 
frankly, I think that's a little hard to say. It's uh, it might be studied. You know, we also have le uh, legislation that was passed this year, which I don't think has hit the COBOC radar, but that pertains to citizen initiatives and sort of tightening up the process on that, which advocates say will then make it much harder for citizens to propose changes to the law. That's uh, something that happens in states, more of the western states, it's sort of a foreign concept um, in the east. So let's shift gears a bit. Ron, you've been tracking how the Arizona members of Congress are uh, supporting or opposing the Trump agenda, and this is getting you know closely watched by voters who seem to be more energized, maybe because they love Trump or because they hate him. Seems to be that kind of divisive figure. So, so what are you seeing? Are you seeing the members of Congress sort of reacting to that? Um, reacting is probably uh, a little hard to assess at this point. What is clear is that we have some pretty strong uh, divisions between our congressional delegations, uh, reflecting the partisan divide in Washington. Um, the Republicans in Congress are supporting the Trump agenda to the tune of about 96 percent of the votes where the administration's position is, is clearly known. The Democrats from Arizona have opposed the Trump agenda 74% of the time so far. Um, what we are seeing is there are a couple of uh, issues where this has really kind of reflected some of the personal differences with these members. So for example, um, Andy Biggs cast a no vote on the health care vote uh, that passed in May that sent the health care bill over to the Senate that's being wrestled with over there now. Biggs is obviously supportive of much of the Republican plans on this, but didn't like the form. He thought that the bill in the House didn't go far enough, uh, so he voted against it and was uh, on the side of many of the Democrats uh, from Arizona, but for very different reasons, obviously. The Democrats who, you know, oppose the Trump agenda 74% of the time. The fact is that we have uh, two different classes of Democrats that we can see now. Kirsten Sinema and Tom O'Halloran, both of whom hold seats that are relatively competitive. They are in the neighborhood of 40 to 48% supportive of the Trump agenda. Meanwhile, you have uh, Ruben Gallego and Raul Grijalva, two very safe Democrats who oppose the Trump agenda about 93% of the time. Uh, the only common ground they were able to find really has been things like the, um, the uh, bill to keep the, the spending of the government going until the end of the fiscal year. This was not a, this is a must-pass bill that uh, was relatively uh, non-controversial among Democrats and, and relatively moderate Republicans. And it was, that was, that vote was the only one that three of our Four, three of our five Republicans voted against Trump's uh, agenda, by the way. I wonder, Ron, you know, what I think most Arizonans are really focused on are the really big, you know, uh, highly publicized pieces of legislation like the Health Care Act. Are there others uh, that you would note that are maybe more high profile where there's been this split in the delegation? Um, 
I can't think of anything off the top. Uh, Martha McSally's only vote crossing the Trump agenda was involved uh, uh, allowing folks to uh, sue for medical malpractice, I think. So um, she has been supportive of his agenda, perhaps to her detriment politically. Um, but she has basically voted in line with the Trump agenda across the board up to that point. Jeff Flake and John McCain have sort of been picking their battles with the Trump uh, agenda it, in various ways. They've condemned his remarks. They've complained about certain moves that he has made. But when it comes to roll call votes on actual bills in front of them that the administration has outlined its positions, they've been supportive 93% of the time as well. So it's it's been uh, really kind of a, a stark picture. And I guess what is maybe most notable about it is how that hasn't shifted in six months uh, under this Congress, is that the battle lines still seem relatively hardened and, and folks are not sort of uh, seeking some middle ground, uh, as it were. So if you go to the extreme, say if you're a like a you know liberal Democrat, never Trump type person, I don't see you being convinced one way or another. You're going to vote probably you're going to vote for the Democrat every time, and, and the same with the far right of, of the Republican Party. How does this play kind of there in the middle where you have voters who are maybe more at play than than at the extremes? That's a good question. I, I think that this is the kind of metric that will be undoubtedly used in the political campaigns to come. Uh, in particular, I think of Martha McSally. Um, she is going to be painted as a rubber stamp for the Trump administration, and, and people will point to votes in support of that agenda, both large and small. There are things like the routine uh, funding of government that really is a must-pass sort of bill where she has cast her lot with the administration. But then they'll also look to things like the health care vote that she also was supportive of the uh, administration's position. She's going to be held to answer for that. She's already being hammered by Democrats for being overly supportive of it. She has pointed to things like congressional uh, review acts that undid some of the Obama administration rulemaking at the end of uh, President Obama's tenure uh, as areas where maybe she has shown some daylight between her and the administration. She has condemned some of the individual acts that he has uh, done that aren't legislative. They're just behavioral more than anything. But this kind of voting record is the sort of thing that becomes fodder for these campaigns moving forward. And I think in that context, people like Tom O'Halloran, uh, Martha McSally, maybe Kirsten Cinema will be pressed on where their votes were, uh, how supportive were they or not. And of course, Jeff Flake is never ending uh, in terms of having to answer for his votes. So, Marcia, let's get into a, a topic that you're going to be focusing on a lot more on your new beat, that being child welfare and the sort of uh, love-hate relationship between foster parents and the Department of Child Safety. I mean, the parents are there to, foster parents are there obviously to help the, the agency and its mission, but they're, they don't really seem to be on the same page all the time. Uh, what's going on now? Well, uh, the other week, um, DCS, the Department of Child Safety Director Greg McKay, sent a letter out to foster families to fo who are licensed with the state saying, we're really trying to get kids out of congregate care. And the kids that are in these group homes tend to be a little older. 
And I know people like to adopt babies, and I know there's a lot of joy in having a little one and, and being able to raise them, but could you please see it, see to it to open your hearts and open your homes and taking kids who are age seven and older? It was very well-intentioned uh, letter, uh, at least that's how I read it. It didn't go over well with a lot of uh, foster families um, on their Facebook forums. Um, their basic response was, wait a minute, we've been <laughs> saying, send us older kids. And we've had parents step forward and say, look, I've been asking, you know, for an older child, and they keep giving me babies. I don't want a baby. I want a 12-year-old. So there is a disconnect here. Um, the agency then responded by saying, well, you know, there's a reason that we don't necessarily just pop a 12-year-old into your home because you got to get the right match and you don't want to keep moving kids around. All very sound social work principles, which are echoed by other groups. But then that begs the question of then why put out a broadcast call for open up your homes and we'll send you kids. What happened to, to Ducey's call for the faith community to step up to the plate? You know, that will probably be something we'll explore a little more as I'm going to have some time to sort of dive deep on some of these child welfare issues. But presumably there are a lot, of, you know, there are faith groups that are working out there. A lot of the um, adoption and foster home placements are connected with, um, are religiously affiliated. So, so is the thinking that, is there sort of a metric or a number on the shortage of foster homes that the agency is working to, to reduce? Or is this sort of just... We always need more. We need to put the call out. What's interesting about that, Michael, is that this plea only went out to existing foster families. There was apparently not an attempt to broaden the base and get more people to sign up as foster families, although that appeal continues. So we'll see. We'll check back in a few weeks because the agency said that they got an initial 100 responses from people saying, yes, we will take in more kids. We'll see if those placements happen. And, I, and I'm sure you'll keep us up to date on that as you cover that issue more intensely. The Arizona Redistricting Commission, Arizona is, is uh, among a, a handful of states that has an independent commission that, that draws the boundaries for state legislature, uh, the districts in, in the state legislature, and also the congressional districts. And uh, Mary Jo, you noted that they have wrapped up their work. What do you mean? They're done. Um, they drew the lines. Uh, they've uh, been the lines that have been in effect since 2012. All the lawsuits that almost um, inevitably flow after you draw new political boundaries have been have been resolved. I, uh, the record will show that the commission won every single one of those legal challenges. There were five in total, including two that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So they have nothing else to fight over, <laughs> nothing else to do. So they um, shut down their offices as of the end of the fiscal year. And uh, we will not see another independent redistricting commission until after the 2020 census. And the lawsuits will start all over again. For our final segment, uh, what are you watching for, Yvonne? I am wanting to see if the federal judge overseeing uh, the bribery and fraud case into a former corporation commissioner and others um, is going to agree to seal certain court documents uh, that presumably would let the public know more details on a larger investigation uh, probably into the 2014 election cycle. So uh, hopefully that will happen sometime this uh, next week. 
Ron? Healthcare. The uh, the Senate obviously hit the pause button last week. That bill, that effort in, in the Senate is um, going to be taken up when they get back next week. And then there's the question, if they reach some kind of agreement, what does that mean for the House? And uh, there could be great drama in the House once again if they are forced to try and take up a, a bill that's very different than the one they struggled to pass in May. So uh, stay tuned. I know uh, folks who have been especially attentive to the health care issue uh, in the, the public at large, they are sort of uh, moving up on the anxiety levels uh, as, as this seems to be moving to some climax. Mary Jo. Well, aside from who gets the furniture that the redistricting commission had, <laughs> uh, the Department of Child Safety is out with its uh, semi-annual report, has its reams of statistics, and it will show us some trends on what's happening, how many kids are still in state care, how many have been adopted, race and ethnicity. So we'll be doing a report on that soon. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at MG Squires. You can find Mary Jo at Mary J. Pitzel. Ron Hansen. You can find me at Ronald J. Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N. And I'm at, at Yvonne Winget. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Kayla White, Hannah Gaber, and Manny Lozano. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.